Uh, but it's a great privilege to be here with you and to, to preach the gospel this morning. And we're going to um, see how the gospel comes to us from Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. You'll find it there in your bulletin, and I'll read that for us now. This is God's holy word. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we ask that through this text you would help us most of all to see the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up. And Father, as it exposes our hearts that we too grow impatient on the way, that we too struggle to be content in this wilderness of life, we pray, O oh God, that as your law reveals that truth about our hearts, that it would lead us on to see Christ high and lifted up, and that it is the gospel, it is you yourself that begins to heal us and give us that true contentment that only you can give and we so long for. By the work of your spirit, be pleased to do this in our midst, O oh God. And I pray that through my words, O oh God, you would truly speak, not my words, but your words for your people. And so we pray, speak, O oh Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to think with me this morning about a time when you started something new, that new job, that first child that was on the way, getting married, going off to university, whatever it might be. And when we start something new, usually we're excited about it, maybe a little anxious, but we're excited. But if you're like me, it's not too long before the newness and the excitement wears off a little bit. And that thing that we so, we're so excited about now becomes the thing we gripe about, the thing we're frustrated about, because the newness wears off. And we have the expression in our culture, the honeymoon is over for a reason. The newness wears off, and now we have to live in the reality of life. And Scripture tells us so much that we are just like Israel, we're a wilderness people, and we too are prone to grow patient, impatient on the way and gripe and complain. And this text helps us. That, that might be a, a hard diagnosis, but the help, the, this text helps us to be honest about that reality and then leads us on to see how God points us to himself. as how we can grow to be more and more content in the Lord Jesus Christ, even through the trials and the hardships of life. And so this morning, I want to walk through this relatively short text and just look at the problem, the context, the problem, what's going on with Israel and their hearts, 
And then we want to see how God begins to, to intervene, to act in his grace. And then finally, God's healing prescription, if you'll let me say it that way. So let's think first about the problem here in Numbers 21. Let me just orient us uh, for a minute as we're jumping into the book of of Numbers. In the early chapters, there's censuses that are uh, are taken by the people of Israel, and they're organized to go to the Promised Land. They're on Mount Sinai as the book begins, and they're going to set off for the land of Canaan. And those censuses that are taken, that's why it's called the book of Numbers. But the Hebrew title is simply, In the Wilderness. And that's a, that's a key that we're about to recount, we're about to hear of Israel's journey from Sinai eventually to the land of, of Canaan. And I'm always struck when I think about that. You know, they didn't walk that far. They kind of walked in circles, and they, they eventually they got there. The first generation didn't get to go in, if you know the story. So it's an interesting story, but what we find is life in the wilderness is, is hard, and so as we jump into chapter 21, in, in the context, it's the seventh rebellion of Israel, the final rebellion of, of Israel. And so God uh, is going to act through these serpents and with Israel's rebellion. But what we find is life in the wilderness is hard. That's the first thing we want to see. And this is, is the problem. They grow impatient on the way. Now think about it. They're there on Mount Sinai. That means they've seen The first generation didn't just see, they walked through the dry land of the Exodus. They've seen God act in mighty ways. They've been fed every day with the manna from heaven. Their sandals haven't worn out. They've been cared for, if we know all that's going on behind this story. But what do they do? They begin to look at Moses and and they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To put that in New Testament terms, that's to say, God, it would have been better if you didn't save us. To go back to Egypt in Scripture is never a good thing. It's to go away from the Lord and towards sin. Cared for every day, saved through the great salvation event of the Old Testament, the Exodus, and here they are, this worthless food. Impatient, discontent, griping, and complaining. Now, I think we could sympathize on a human level. You know, I like Cheerios, but if I had to eat them every single day for 20 years, I might gripe and complain too. But what we're supposed to see is there's a deeper reality behind their griping and their complaining. It's not so much that they just don't like the manna, though that's what they think is going on, but that reveals that they're really frustrated with the way God has taken care of them. They're frustrated with God's provision They're discontent, we might say, with the circumstances of life. Or to say it slightly more theologically, they've become convinced that God's providence is not a good thing, but it's a problem. And if we're honest, we could think like that too at times. And so this text is is so helpful because it helps us think about our lives as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that analogous way, we're, we're in the wilderness. The book of Hebrews tells us that. Not the one-to-one situation with Israel, but we are a wilderness people. They're on their way to the land of Canaan. That typological picture of, of heaven, of the inheritance that awaits for the people of God. And we too are in the wilderness, saved and secure in Christ. We're in, we're in a better place with better promises and a better covenant than the old covenant. So not one-to-one, but secure in Christ, but still in the wilderness. Forgiven of our sins, 
saved through his cross and resurrection, but not in the fullness of our salvation yet. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth, the ultimate and final promised land. So just like Israel, we are in the wilderness of life. And the wilderness is often a hard place, full of trials and temptations. And one of the biggest threats as we live as God's people is to grow discontent. But isn't there a tendency, in all of us, maybe some of us more than others, but isn't there a tendency, and I tend to have this tendency, the grass is greener on the other side. Right? If some circumstance of my life could just change, then magically everything would get better. And as I say that, I wonder what it is in your mind and in your heart. If I could just change this one thing, life would suddenly improve. Now, I think we need to, to be clear. Some circumstances do need to change. The scriptures never say put up with abuse or oppression. There's a great Puritan book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which is actually really helpful. It shows that our discontentment is not a new problem. It's been a struggle always, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. But Jeremiah Burroughs, in that book, what, what he does, it's really helpful. He makes a distinction between discontentment and being unsatisfied. And so we shouldn't be satisfied with sin. We shouldn't like the sin that's left in our heart or the sin we see in the world. We shouldn't be satisfied or content with things that are against God's word and God's will for his people and for his creation. So we, please don't hear me saying we should put up with abuse and oppression or just be okay with sin that's going around. That's not what the discontentment being diagnosed in Numbers 21. What's being diagnosed here in Numbers 21 is Israel growing impatient along the way when they have been cared for day in and day out. They have everything they need, and they're looking at God and saying, this isn't how we want to do it. This isn't right. You must be keeping something from us. There's a, a meme when I was putting together the sermon that I came across, uh, one of those pictures you find on the internet, and it's two cows in lush green pastures, and each cow has its head stuck through the fence, eating the grass of the other cow's pasture. And it just says, discontent. And doesn't that get at our hearts, at least at times? And really, this has played out through all of the scripture, hasn't it? You think about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve placed in the garden, cared for, provided for. They had all they needed and even more. And then what happens? The serpent comes. We have serpents in our text. The serpent, Satan, comes and he begins to say, oh, that one tree that God told you not to eat from, he's really holding back from you. You know, life would actually get better. And so what happens to Adam and Eve? What can happen to us? That one thing that we think would make life better, we fixate upon it. And we think we just have to have it. And there in the Garden of Eden, they fixate on that one tree, the forbidden fruit, and they eat and the world was never the same again. See, so they went against God's provision and the venom of sin, to use the theme of our text, the venom of sin has wreaked havoc in the world. In Numbers 21, that the serpents will come and the venom will spill out upon the people. It is a picture of what sin does. It's a picture of what happened when Adam and Eve ate the tree that fateful day. And so we, 
can use this text to diagnose our hearts. And, and really, what's going on behind it is we can think circumstances can change and life would improve. And that might be true in some kind of provisional way. But really, deep down spiritually, when we grow impatient along the way, what we're really saying is that we're not satisfied with the way God is doing things. And so we begin to try to find contentment in other things, maybe good things, relationships, money, work, but things that we begin to use as God replacements. And what we, what we begin to see through Numbers 21 and what's going on in the Garden of Eden is that we were made for God and that the only thing that will give us true contentment is God himself. Yep, physical life might get a little bit better if you got that raise, but at the end of the day, it's not going to make your heart happy. Because it's only God that can make us happy and content. And so this morning I have to ask the hard question, where are you looking for contentment? What is that one thing that you think if you could get today, life would suddenly just be better? And you know, one of the realities of life, and this is true for all of us, but young people, I think this is so important, is you know, we could get everything that we want in life you know, whatever it might be, that you might become that professional sports star, you might get that job that you've always wanted, or maybe you're a musician and you make it big. You know, we tend to think if those things would happen, life would be so great. But you know, that might actually happen for some people in this room. You might have a, a goal for your life and you might have the talent, the ability, and the resources to get everything you dream of. And you'll still wake up one day discontent if you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, this is so striking. We, we see this play out in our world with, with people who do get what they thought would make them happy. And they get to the, the top, quote unquote. And so often they feel empty. And there's so many examples that we could look to, to to see this. But one of the most striking, I think, is Tom Brady. And this is a fairly well-known story. You might have heard this before. But back a, a, a while ago now when Tom Brady was with, you know, at his prime with the New England Patriots, he had just won his third Super Bowl. He'd go on to win more, of course, but they had just won the third Super Bowl when he was the quarterback there in New England. And he sat down with 60 Minutes for um, an, an interview. And just listen to how this interview goes. The host says this to Tom Brady. He says, you have all you ever wanted. And Brady answers, yeah, but I didn't know it came with all the baggage. And then Brady goes on and he keeps talking. And just a moment of raw honesty. Just listen to what he says. This is a man who just won three Super Bowls, married to a supermodel, has it all in the eyes of the world. And he goes on to say, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Many people say, hey man, this is the top. You've reached your dreams and your goals. Me, I think there has to be more than this. And the reporter looks at Tom Brady and he says, well, what's the answer? And Tom Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And see, Numbers 21, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ says, I know the answer. I am the answer. See, God has made us for himself. And, and as St. Augustine prayed so wonderfully thousands of years ago, oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so Numbers 21 says, I am the answer. And he begins to, to show us how he is the answer. But come back with me now specifically to verses 6 and 7. It unfolds in a rather odd way, but God now begins to intervene. Israel's griping, complaining, 
they're impatient, they're discontent. And the, the text is, is going to show us that what that reveals is it's not the circumstances of life that is the problem, but Israel has a heart problem. We have a heart problem when we grow impatient on the way. And this unfolds in, in a somewhat odd way, because what does God do? Again, it's the seventh and final rebellion within the book of Numbers. And so God acts in, in judgment, or God punishes Israel there in verse 6 by sending these fiery serpents. He sends the fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And now, historians will tell us that the venom of these snakes in this ancient Near Eastern part of the world would have, would have been really deadly, really awful. In a matter of minutes, you would have caught a dangerous fever, had unquenchable thirst, and of course, eventually you would, would die. It might seem a little bit harsh. Okay, Israel just didn't like the food they were eating. This is a little, a little harsh. But remember, God is punishing them for their rebellion and for their sin. And what we're supposed to see is that venom that comes inside of them. It's, it's a picture of what sin does when it's left unchecked. But the text also does begin to show us how do we respond and how God intervenes as they cry out for help to God. I know that I came across a, a really striking illustration of this right here from Southern California. It's a little bit old, older story. Back in 2012, there's a guy named Caden Riviera, and he was camping with his family. I'm not, the article I found didn't tell me the exact location, but it was somewhere in Southern California. He chased the, Caden chased the family dog into the bushes and immediately started crying out in pain. So his dad runs over and discovered that his son, Caden, had been bitten by a Mojave green rattlesnake. Now, you probably know um, what that would look like living in this part of the world, but if you don't, the Mojave green rattlesnake, uh, it's not just a venomous rattlesnake. Its, it's venom is a neurotoxin. So it begins to attack your nervous system so that you foam at the mouth, you vomit, your body organs and systems start to shut down. Uh, and so they, they, just so you know, Caden survives this story, I should tell you that. But that was happening to him. His nervous system was shutting down. He was vomiting, foaming at the mouth. They got him to the hospital, and thankfully he survived, but it took 42 vials of antivenom. That's how deadly the venom is. So a graphic story that helps us think about what's going on here in Numbers 21. But, but think about it. It begins to show us how we respond when we see that when these physical signs, if you will, our discontentment begins to say, okay, there's something deeper going on. Just like the venom running through the body of Caden says, there's something going on, there's something wrong with me. What does he do? He cries out to his dad for help. Now, think about it. He could have acted like there was no problem. He could have acted like this is normal, or I'll just get better if I just, just wait it out, but he wouldn't be here today. And look back with me at our text. What happens Many die, but those who survive, what, what happens? Those who survive are the ones who do what? They cry out. In this case, to Moses, who's the mediator pointing us to Christ. But they cry out confessing their sin. They cry out admitting that they have spoken against Moses, that they have spoken against God. And so this shows us that there is a healing aspect to confessing our sin, that when we're honest about what's going on and we cry out to God, just as we've done together this morning, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I didn't know Ari was going to pick that passage this morning, so that worked nice. 
Um, but, but, so we have to cry out to God. We have to admit what's going on. God uses our confession in this healing way. But now as we think about getting to the gospel, getting to Christ, we have to be so careful. Because our healing is important. Our confession is, is important. It plays a, a role. It might open the door in a human way to God's healing grace to come in. But it's not our act of confession that saves us or that heals us. Think about Caden again. He could cry out all day long that there was something wrong, but just the mere fact of crying out that he'd been bitten by a snake and his skin was beginning to, to, to feel like it was burning wouldn't actually save him. He needed help from the outside. He needed that anti-venom that he couldn't give to himself. And This is what we find in verses 8 and 9. God's healing prescription. We need to, to cry out, but then God gives the remedy to begin to, to forgive, to make things right. And this, this happens, it's a little bit odd too, but it helps us to understand the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what happens there? He takes a bronze serpent, so the very thing that was inflicting them, they fashion it into this bronze serpent, they lift it up on a pole, and a simple look, a simple look, and they are healed. They are saved. Verse 9, Moses makes the bronze serpent, puts it on that pole, and anyone who would look at the serpent lives, we read. Now theologically, in the ancient Near Eastern world, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Because snakes were actually signs of life and health in most cultures. But in the Bible, it's different. Way back in Eden, throughout Scripture, the serpent is the enemy. It's a sign of sin and evil. And we don't know for sure, but most scholars would say this is likely an allusion back to Pharaoh and to Egypt. Because remember, Israel, what do they say? Let us, why did you bring us out of Egypt? They're basically saying, I, I would love to go back to Egypt. But Pharaoh had this snake imagery. The enemies of God have this snake imagery throughout Scripture. If you think about Goliath, David and Goliath. David is, is dressed or, or in... Um, or sorry, Goliath is, looks like scales. The armor is supposed to look like scales. So he's a serpent-like figure. And so the signs, of the, in the Bible, the, the serpent is signs of evil, trouble, and sin. And so why in the world do we have this story tucked away here in Numbers 21? Maybe it's, getting, it's helping us see the evil of sin and evil of serpents, but it becomes clear as we keep, keep reading as we keep understanding God's unfolding plan of redemption, and we come to the New Testament, and we come to John chapter 3, this famous incident where Nicodemus is, is attracted to Jesus and comes to him at night because he's afraid of the Pharisees. And he comes and they have this great conversation about being born again, about the regeneration of our hearts and what's going on. And, and Jesus is a little bit... Um, he. he it's really interesting. He kind of looks at Nicodemus and says, you, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Okay, teacher of Israel, let's have a little Bible study. And he goes on and he, he references this story. Nicodemus doesn't get it. How can these things be? And in verse 13, he says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So you see, Jesus is this bronze serpent. This true account 
in the history of Israel, in the Old Testament way, the simple look of faith at the bronze serpent brought them salvation, brought them healing, brought them life. And now Jesus is, is saying, yes, that was true in a provisional way, but I am the true, the final bronze serpent. And see, I'm the one who's going to lay down my life, but I'm also going to rise again. And if you want to find the cure for the problem of sin that so often manifests in our discontentment, then look to me in faith. And there's a really, really neat thing that's going on in, in Numbers 21. See, it's the very thing that inflicts Israel that becomes the thing that they look upon. Right? The serpents are coming and inflicting them. And that becomes what God says to look upon. And we read uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he do as he stands in our place upon the cross? He takes our sin upon him. Second Corinthians 5.19, that he who knew, knew no sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, on the, on the cross, Jesus took on the venom of the serpent, and he won. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be healed, because he sucks the poison of sin, if I can say it that way, out of us, and he forgives us, and he, he gives us new life, and he, he, he does that initially, but he does it, so he's so kind, he does it over and over again as we keep looking to him in faith. And more and more and more we can learn, even in the trials and troubles and temptations of the wilderness, to live content. Because if we have the Lord Jesus Christ, then we really do have God's best. And so this grace, this medicine, is activated by simply looking and believing. I don't know if you've ever heard the account of Charles Spurgeon's conversion, but it brings home this theme in a really helpful way. Spurgeon was a churchgoer, cultural Christian churchgoer, before he was converted. And there was a big snowstorm in England. I think it was in London. But he was a churchgoer, so he got up to go to church. The snow was so bad he couldn't make it to his, his normal church, but he went into what he calls a primitive Methodist church. I'm not actually sure exactly what that is. But he comes in, and the storm was so bad, the minister of this primitive Methodist church didn't even turn up for church one day. Uh, for, for, for this day on the storm. So a church member climbs into the pulpit and just begins to read the Bible and to offer a short sermon just for those who could make it in the middle of, of the snow. And, and the man's text that day was from Isaiah, and it was the text that said, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon's account is, is kind of humorous. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. And so the man goes on, and he's, he's expounding what this means. He says, it's not work, it's not lifting your foot, it's not trying harder, it's simply looking. It says, look unto me. And so the man went on and on and kind of explained what that meant, very simple terms, and then Spurgeon says, then he looked at me. And there was only a few people there, but he looked right at Charles Spurgeon, and the man looked at him, he said, young man, you look very miserable. And Spurgeon says, well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, the preacher, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you do obey now, this moment... 
you will be saved. And we could use that illustration to say you will always be discontent if you're measuring your happiness and your contentment by the circumstances of life. But if we will look in faith just as Israel does, not to the bronze serpent, but to the ultimate bronze serpent, the Lord Jesus Christ, then he forgives and he begins to heal. He begins to change us so that we learn how to be his content people. As we come to the Lord's Supper today, it's a reminder that we still live in the wilderness, that God will heal us, but we will have our trials and struggles. But it's also a reminder that we travel in hope because the journey through the wilderness leads us to that ultimate promised land where there will be no discontent. You know, whatever the trials and struggles of life might be, we won't get to heaven and be disappointed. So we travel with that hope. We travel in faith because the Lord Jesus Christ has crushed the head of the serpent and begins to suck the venom out. And we travel with the assurance of his love, his love that would send his son to die on the cross for his body broken for us. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, we come as people who will this week be tempted to believe the lie of Satan, that lie that he still whispers. If you just had that one thing, life would be better. And so we might say that Satan will still nip at our heels, but we come to the Lord's table remembering that the Lord Jesus Christ has already defeated him, ripping out his fangs as it were. And we come knowing this wonderful promise from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 7. Christ has promised to every believer who overcomes the wilderness of this world the privilege to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, the Lord's Supper this morning is a foretaste of that tree of life. And as we eat, we're pointed forward to that great day when discontentment will be gone forever, but we're also strengthened for another six days in the wilderness. And so are you discontent this morning? Come longing for the Lord Jesus Christ at his table. Come looking to him in faith, knowing that that is the only place that your heart will begin to be satisfied. Come with great joy because he has defeated the serpent. And for all of those who simply look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, that venom, those whispers, those temptations, will not do us in. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we we confess that this text diagnoses our hearts, but it only diagnoses our hearts because you don't want us to miss the grace and the mercy that you give to us in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we do pray that the eyes of our hearts will be drawn back to our Savior in faith, that we know the great forgiveness that we have, and that more and more your Spirit would work in our hearts, that we could learn with the Apostle Paul, regardless of the circumstances of life, that we could learn to be content because of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do for all of those who simply look to Christ in faith. Be so kind to do that in our hearts and in our lives this week. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.